Welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turco. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoy our empathic explorations into working lives, please share studs with your people. And if you support the mission of studs and you dig the program, I got a way for you to show your support. Just head over to patreon.com backslash studs. You'll find the link in the show notes. I offer a range of rewards for your support. You can get some pretty cool stuff for just a couple bucks. Maybe that should be your New Year's resolution. Support independent creators. This episode of Studs rings in the new year with a woman who brings new life into the world. Kira Jackson is a nurse midwife. We discuss the spiritual dimensions of her work. She also shares how the historical traditions of midwifery, particularly those of First Nations and of the African-American communities, inform and inspire her approach to her work. She meditates on control and letting go, a meditation apropos as we dive into 2021. Just a quick heads up, the first five minutes might sound a little bit gritty, You might not even notice it. We figure it out right quick. It's a new year, so it's only fitting that we speak to someone who brings new life. Please enjoy me in conversation with Kira Jackson. Kira Jackson, welcome to Studs. It is a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for making time for me. It it means a lot to me. How do you describe your role as a registered nurse and a midwife in training? I'm currently a registered nurse um, and I'm, I'm a really proud nurse, but in many ways, this is just, this is the pathway to midwifery. And what is it about midwifery that appeals to you so strongly? I see midwifery as healing work. It's not just a job. And I know this sounds very woo-woo, but like it is a calling. And many people in my field and in the circles that I'm in around um, like birth work circles with uh, doulas and lactation consultants, we use that word quite a bit, actually. Midwifery is a certain model of care. It's a very ancient model of care. It is for individuals, and I feel like it's also for communities and families, and I think it's transformative. So you talk about this as, a, as healing work and as a calling, and you're in the throes of study now. Can you talk a little bit about the program of study in which you're currently engaged? Sure, yeah. Um, so I am in my final year at um, Yale University School of Nursing. Yale's program is the oldest in the country, but there are many other programs like this in the U.S. So I was 10 years out of undergrad before coming into this work. I don't feel like that was a deficit. I feel like that was actually an advantage now as an older student. Would you be so kind as to walk me along your professional path? Can you talk about that decade between the completion of your undergraduate work and your entry into this program? Like, what were you up to, Kira? Yeah. <laughs> so I went to school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at Marquette University. I loved my years there, but definitely had a lot of anxiety as I approached graduation about what I would do with my life. I feel like all good stories start with heartbreak. And so actually a breakup led me to leave Wisconsin and go to Huntsville, Alabama, where I worked for a short season at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center as an educator. Um, So if you've ever heard of Space Camp, I was one of the instructors for 
the teams of students that would come through with the hopes of becoming astronauts. On a very random whim, I begged my parents to drive me down to Huntsville and drop me off. (laughs) And I lived there for about seven months or so. Oh, my. Yeah. We have uh, the better part of a year down in Alabama. And then where do we go from there? Walk the path with me. So while I was in Alabama, I was working on a, an application for an internship program at an organization and magazine called Sojourners. I had come across a book that had introduced me to this idea of politics being able to commingle with faith. And this was an idea that a concept that was very foreign to me that kind of scared me and made me uncomfortable. And, but it was just intriguing and it was kind of freeing to hear this new narrative about bipartisan politics and how our faith belongs in public life that we actually shouldn't be completely private in our faith. So I thought, you know, I'm gonna apply for this internship, we'll see. The internship was based in DC. The principle behind it was to live in community with six other people. We would all work full time for the organization, but our housing and yeah, cost of living would all be taken care of and we'd get a small stipend, but it would be the practice of living in community combined with experience at the organization. And so while I was still at space camp, I got a call and was offered one of the slots and decided that I was going to DC. Oh, how exciting. It was so exciting. It must have been amazing. It was amazing. It was so amazing. The program was a year, but it was the hardest, most blessed year of my life. So for the next seven and a half, eight years, I continued to live in community, even after getting married to my husband in 2015. So you talk about midwifery as a calling and you talk about it as healing work. And now I know a little bit about your background in communities of faith. How much and in what ways does your sense of spirituality and your faith motivate this calling that you have? Um. So being in Washington, D.C. and working at Sojourners, I was meeting all of these people who were people of faith and they had an issue. You know, they had one thing that they had spent their life advocating for or against. You know, for some people, it was homelessness or housing insecurity. For other people, it was anti-war issues other people, it was the environment and environmental issues. Birth was the first issue I was like, this is a social justice issue. And I understood it like deep, deep down, Mm. even before I had been exposed to much birth. Mm. I was kind of like, I understand how this can break down a person, how it can degrade, how if it's not done right, it can really disempower the birthing person, her partner, um, the family, and that on the other side of that, you can really build someone up or heal traumas or empower someone by taking good care during that season of someone's life. Another thing I thought of when you asked that question was the story from Exodus where Pharaoh asks two midwives, Shifra and Pua, to kill all the Hebrew boys that are born. And they just make, they just straight up make up lies about, we don't know, like we're not coming across any boy babies. Like there are no boy babies to kill. These Hebrew women just pop them out. We, by the time we're called to the birth, like they've, you know, already fled and we don't, you know, and they really preserved the lives of these children and still continue to do their job. And then kind of in the last portion of that passage, it talks about how they like honored God through their work and God blessed them with their own families. And I just think that's a beautiful picture of like 
people taking care of one another and being defiant sometimes for a good cause. So in addition to saving my people from the Pharaoh, Mm -hmm. what, what else do midwives do? What is the role of the midwife in a 21st century American context? Oh my goodness. It's so much. Sometimes I joke and I'm like, if I had known (laughs) how much this entails, maybe I wouldn't have gone to school. Scratch the surface of it for me. Okay. So I want to just pause to say that there are different types of midwives. There are lay midwives, there are licensed midwives, certified professional midwives, CPMs, and then CNM, certified nurse midwives. So I chose to become a CNM. That's the only form of midwifery where you have to become a nurse, like you are a nurse. Like I chose nurse midwifery because I can practice in all 50 states. Um, I have fewer restrictions than other midwives, you know, other types of midwives, but I'm also doing full scope care. And also I'm the only type of midwife that can function in a hospital setting. Okay. Okay. So I'm a prescribe, I'm a licensed prescriber. I can prescribe medications. I'm doing different types of procedures like women's health gyne procedures, attending births. So I would kind of think of nurse midwifery as having like two components. There is the OB, like obstetrician side of things. So think of like labor and birth, catching babies. And then the other side is the outpatient. So the nine to five, you know, folks slotted for appointments to get birth control prescribed or um, I've got an itch. What do you think this is? Or, you know, I have this weird breast pain and color changes. Can you look at this and tell me what you think? It's running tests. It's looking at panels. It's also prenatal care, but it's menopausal care. Uh, So it's really walking with women through their life cycle, providing gynecologic and reproductive care. First of all, I totally get what you're saying. That sounds like a lot of roles. It It sounds like (laughs) a lot of plates to juggle. But the good news is you're not working alone, right? Right. You work alongside other healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. What's the role of the midwife vis-a-vis other healthcare professionals on, say, like a birthing team? Sure. So that's exactly right. Like, you know, I'll just quickly note that some of what got me into interested in into midwifery is having worked as a doula in DC for a few years. When you understand birth and how humans and other mammals birth well, it's feeling safe, secure, taken care of, and then they're free to kind of, their body and their cervix is free to open. Birth is really a releasing So the care team. So I think about there's the care team at home, but what about in, let's say, the hospital setting? So midwives work alongside OBGYNs. OBGYNs are trained in labor and birth, but they are surgeons. So they specialize and are able to do hysterectomies and tubal ligations and cesarean sections. Midwives are not trained to do any of those things. So... In collaborative models that I've seen that have worked really well, the patient or the the birthing person is the one who's deciding where they want to get their care. Um, We present both models of care. The midwifery model of care tries to minimize interventions and promote physiologic birth. That's not something that you can just show up on the day that you're contracting and in labor and automatically have a physiologic birth. Sometimes that happens very easily for people, but often there's some preparation that needs to happen in advance. Um, And so we try to help with that so that on the day of there might be less mental or physical or emotional blocks so that this person can feel safe to birth. Other people really want the care and need the care because of other conditions of a highly specialized OB that might be able to provide them with the interventions that they need or the treatments that they need during their course in the hospital. And so that's when OBs step in. 
And then there are registered nurses that are really the backbone of kind of the constant care and constant companionship to these individuals once they show up. And then anesthesia, I would say, is the other part of our care team for people that might want pain management. So it is a fully interdisciplinary engagement. You got a lot yep. of hands on mm-hmm. deck, right? For sure. Yeah. Now, not only do you have a lot of hands on deck, but the decks change, right? Like you have all these different childbirth settings. You have people who want home births and hospital births and their birth centers. And then there's people who want to give birth on a patch of lilies in mm-hmm. a field. Right. And space means everything. Mm-hmm. You know, space and setting are critically important. Can you talk a bit about the different settings in which you work? And like, do you have like a preference for a particular setting? So the setting where I work the most is in a hospital. In the new year, I'll be going back to DC and I'll be working at the only freestanding birth clinic in DC. So that will be very different. Now, not every single person births there. Some will have to transfer for a variety of reasons to the hospital. I will note, and this is a story that I I can tell or not, but I've seen one home birth and that is what I call my divine tap. Um, And that is what ultimately made me apply to midwifery school. Oh, oh my gosh. Tell the story. Okay. <laughs> tell me everything. Okay. So it was a dark and stormy night in DC. <laughs> it really was. At the time, I was working as a doula taking maybe four births a year. So I had a nine to five job at a different nonprofit. And I knew this mom was coming up to her due date. And so I was kind of 24 hours on call, phone always by me. And at the time I worked in a building. It was on the top floor, 10th or 12th floor with these floor to ceiling windows. And you would look out and you could see the United States Capitol. So beautiful, just like Mm. pearly white. And that day there were these storm clouds. It just looked like someone was pulling just the color of bruises. And I was a bike commuter at the time. And I was like, I have got to get out of here because it is about to pour. I had heard that when the barometric pressure drops, sometimes women, their water can break. And I was thinking about my client at the time and, you know, just keeping my phone close. So I got home in time at a regular evening, didn't hear from Uh, my client, I think I had checked in and she said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm feeling a little crampy, but I'm just going to eat some dinner and go to bed. And that was my plan too. And I had remembered that for her first birth, she did not want any support from her husband. She was like, I couldn't look at him. I didn't want to hear his voice. I was like, stay out of the room. (laughs) And her doula really just saved her. You know, she was like, I just needed the doula the whole time. And she was like, so I might be like that for this next birth too. So I was prepared to really go the distance with her and be her support. Um, Maybe around two o'clock in the morning, I get a call and it's her husband. And he says, I think now is a really good time to come. She seems to have kind of turned a corner. And I think like we should transfer to the hospital soon. And so... I say, okay. And I look at my phone and realize I had missed a call from him an hour prior. And I felt so bad. I was like, (laughs) oh no. no. So I rushed over there. The rain had stopped, but it was kind of just like black, shiny, slick streets. And I got there and her husband was warming up something in the microwave for her back. And I got up there and she just was like, shouting expletives and like, I can't do this. And she's like, it was not like this with my last one. And she just was, she was mad and clearly working hard. And just, it was a level of intensity that I think was just a lot. So I said, we should, we should get ready to go. Like, let's get packed up and head over to the hospital. 
And so she goes to the bathroom and I remember distinctly kneeling on her floor in the darkness and just the light of the bathroom kind of shining in. And she uses the bathroom and comes out and comes over to me and just puts her hand on my shoulder. And I look up at her and she's having another contraction and a little bit of light from the bathroom is shining on her face. And I look up and her face is like scrunched and lips are pursed. And I just look up at her and I say her name and I say, are you pushing? And she says, yes. And <laughs> um, one of our instructors always jokes um, about packing some anal incontinence bags with you uh -huh. <laughs> when you're a new nurse, because oh, that was a moment where I just wanted to scream no. And <laughs> so oh, no. I just call her husband and I'm like, we need to go right now. Where's her bag? Is the car out front? Like, we've got to go. And he kind of says, oh, okay, I don't have a, let me get some things for the bag. And I just remember him turning over to the dresser and starting to rummage through the dresser. And I was like, no, you need to be in the car right now, honking for us to come down. We don't, I just had a sense we did not have time. And her contractions just started coming back to back. And at one point we were like, okay, let's go. And she just said, I'm not going anywhere. And there was a staircase that had led up to their bathroom. And she's like, there's no way I'm going down those stairs. And her husband had offered to carry her. And she just was like, you're ridiculous. And so I just said, you need to call 911. Uh. Yeah. She started to push. And I tried to remember everything that I had ever seen a midwife do which was mainly just to stand there and make sure the baby doesn't fall. Yeah. <laughs> and she, she stood and she pushed standing up and I caught her son in my hands. And for some reason, the cord had snapped. I still to this day don't understand why this, the cord was separated. And so I had to kind of revive him and try to spend some time like working on him to get him to be animated and cry and had her husband take her over to the side of the room and tie a shoelace around the cord coming from the placenta to cut off her blood, you know, bleeding. And then as the baby started to sputter and cry, I heard footsteps on the stairs and a team of a couple of EMTs came in and I could breathe a sigh of relief. Oh my. You brought life into the world safely on that dark and stormy night, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was the moment. That was the moment. I was high for like at least 24 hours after that. I remember I had enough time to go to work. The next morning, so <laughs> I just bought a dress from Whole Foods on my way to work <laughs> <laughs> and covered up my bloodstained jeans and went into the office like I didn't miss a beat. But I was high the whole day long. And I think part of it was that I learned who I was. Like I had met a me that I didn't know existed. Like I was so calm in that moment. And I just was quickly prioritizing the most important things in that moment. And a lot, a lot could have gone wrong, but it was all fine. And I remember once we got to the, like we rode in the ambulance to the hospital and I would not let her son go. Like she didn't want to hold him right away. She just said, you keep holding him. And I did not want to let him go. Like EMT were trying to take them. And I was like, no, he's mine. <laughs> I just felt very possessive. It just was awesome. It sounds awesome, yet so daunting. And overall, it seems really stressful. You know, you talked for a moment there about how you had this difficulty, you know, giving up this kid to the world. And I'd imagine that that is sort of a symbolic representation of the difficulties that you must have in establishing boundaries to ensure that you're 
work life doesn't undermine your own health and your own wellness. Mm-hmm. You bring life into the world. But maybe you could talk for now a little bit about how you establish boundaries to make sure that like you can do this day after day. Um, yeah, I don't know that I have self-imposed boundaries yet. I don't know. I, I feel like midwifery is like port, you know, Hmm. you know, it gets better with age and I just, I get excited when I think of myself as a 65 year old midwife and what wisdom I have from attending hundreds of births, maybe thousands of births and how I can bring that to those future patients. There is a lot of burnout and people might do it for 10 years and then decide I can't do this anymore. Yeah. I mean, I guess part of my interest in it is that you on a daily basis have this opportunity to interface with remarkably stressful situations. You have to support a woman who is in tremendous pain, usually, and who is undergoing existential anxiety often. Mm -hmm. And part of your work, as I understand it, is to be fully present and empathic in that process. And, you know, despite the pain and despite the anxiety, you're there holding hands, wiping sweat, being encouraging, but being super real the whole time. Mm -hmm. And they go through that once or twice or five times in their life, you know, depending on how many kids they have. Mm -hmm. You go through that with much greater frequency. It's It's a lot to go through. Right. And I'm wondering about the toll it takes on you, like when you were a doula, when you were a nurse, and now that you're on the path to midwifery, what's the toll it takes and how do you grapple? Yeah. So I might take a moment to just give a shout out to indigenous midwives. I think of grand midwives, black midwives, predominantly in the South. And I think of Mexico, indigenous midwives in Mexico and yeah, also the practices of First Nations in Native or Native communities in the U.S. And I feel like they really have given us a roadmap to, to modern midwifery care, specifically home birth, where you're kind of outside of hospital policies and procedures and practices, but also in the ritual and the self-care and the boundaries that they create. Like I really think of like those midwives and the ways that they practice midwifery as really, they saw themselves as guardians, guardians of birth. And I think, I don't know in particular, this is just speculation, but if you were to look into their lives, that they would have perhaps good boundaries or good rituals and good practices to fortify and strengthen themselves because that is the work that they do for other people. I think that maybe we've lost that in the westernization and I'm going to use the term whitewashing because there's a lot of historical context about what happened to indigenous and minority, specifically black midwifery in the United States and the kind of medicalization and formalization of nursing medicine, and then birth, that we just said, you know, we're going to show up and we're going to churn out. We're going to get our numbers in. We're going to get as many birthing people in and get these deliveries done. But the energy doesn't care. Yeah. 
the energy will wear on you. The energy is present. There is no birth where you do not feel that wave of energy that is powerful and fatiguing and also can take you high as a kite. I knew a midwifery friend um, or mentor who just said, never make a decision right after a birth because you are high. <laughs> like you are not in your right mind. Those pheromones and everything are like flying around. Don't do it. Don't do it. I also had another good mentor ask me, because I remember one time I came to her after a birth and I just kind of felt frantic and anxious and it wasn't a particularly traumatic birth. And she just said, was your head covered? And I said, what do you mean? And she was like, did you have a head wrap on? Did you wrap your head? And I said, no. And um, then she just said, to ground yourself, you need to cover your head. She was like, this is too much going to a birth every other day and to stay grounded. So yeah, that again, another really good question, because I think there are communities that have been practicing good um, self-care or making the art of midwifery something that's sustainable and well integrated into their societies. I'm not sure that the westernized model has done that. Hmm. Do you cover your head now? No. Actually, yes, I do. Because now you have to wear scrub caps. <laughs> right. if you have to go into a surgery. So I do. So I, I really do want to get into the nuts and bolts of your work, but you just brought up something that I just find profoundly interesting. So like, okay, this might be a bit of a windup, but b bear with me because I know I have a question here, right? Like on some level, this might be a global phenomenon. It, it seems like in the U.S., there is, at least among a certain subsection of the population, a cultural trend towards families like seeking to manage the narrative of their birth story. It's like they have an ideologically loaded birthing scenario and they have an image of what it's supposed to be that's a representation of their values. And in some ways, it's like a repudiation of the medicalization of, of, of birthing. And I wonder how do you help your clients to manage the narrative of their birth story? Like, how do you get the family who is intent on giving natural birth on a bed of kale at a fish show, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. To the hospital for Pitocin and the C-section. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you help to manage expectations and respect the narrative that people are trying to create for themselves? Because it is special. Depending on where you work, your practice, you're just going to find a different clientele with very different like ideologies about birth, about how much time and energy they want want or can spend on thinking about the labor and the birth and the reveal party in the shower in the all of this like yeah you know it just depends on where you're practicing but i want to speak to a type of patient that i see that does want to control something that is about letting go hmm. and when those two things war you can see it in the in their birth story. So even though they have their printout, their one page birth plan, there isn't a lot of like letting go that's happening. It's actually a lot of holding on to these expectations and to trying to strong arm this from the beginning of time physiologic process that will do what it's going to do but that's very connected to the mind and the psyche. I mean, how someone is feeling at six or seven months not in labor is very different from someone who's been laboring for 18 hours and is, you know, maybe can't keep food or drink down and they're starting to get dehydrated. And what I think I would say to someone is like, Absolutely. Have plans, have intentions, work toward those things. Do everything you can to have the birth that you hope for. I think that that's completely appropriate. And I think that, 
I think that good preparation can work to the end that you're hoping for. And is that part of your gig is to communicate that so with them so that like, and to walk them through a birthing plan and to help them to develop realistic expectations? So that's probably more of the role of a doula. Our outpatient appointments are so short. It's embarrassing how short they are. Typically, those appointments are about 20 minutes. Sometimes you just take the hit and you go for a little bit longer because it's really important for this person to hash out and to maybe have a plan and to feel more prepared going into a birth. Maybe there's a past trauma and they have a lot of anxiety and they really need to have something concrete. So I do feel like that would be my role. Maybe you could help me get through some of the nuts and bolts because I have a sense of what midwives do in a German context, but in the U S context in like the 21st century sense, what is the role of the midwife relative to the other healthcare professionals in the room? Like what's the space that, you have carved out or that you have to carve out for yourself in the birthing process? Sure. So let's say that somebody has come into a practice, you know, a combined practice or what we call a collaborative practice with OBs and midwives. In the outpatient setting, I might as a midwife provide all of someone's prenatal care And during the course of that, I would talk to them about, okay, so you're getting close to your due date. And when you do go into labor, you'll end up going to the hospital and you'll go to triage. And there are two options. You can be under the OB care, the OBGYN's care, or you can be under midwifery care. And I would go on to describe the difference between the two. If in their chart, they have been slotted for midwifery care, we would answer that call. We would see how they're doing, see if it's necessary for them to come in. If they come in, we would assess them. They would be under our care from the moment they enter the hospital through postpartum and discharge. OBs would only step in with complications and certain complications, not all complications, but issues like shoulder dystocia, certain instances where medication can't manage a postpartum bleed, or if the patient started to get to a point where it was looking like there was fetal distress or maternal distress, and we were needing to consider a cesarean birth. So we function very independently we are able, like I mentioned, we're able to order and prescribe medications. We are in the hospital setting seeing women who are higher risk than a home birth midwife would see because we have access to you know, certain medications. And if somebody for some reason needed to be transfused, we're able to give them blood. Like These are things that we have access in a hospital setting. So we are seeing higher acuity patients that would normally risk out of CNM home birth care. We suture, we do, um, you know, perineal vaginal repairs. We do a lot. It certainly sounds like it. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what it feels like when it goes well? Like, what does it feel like to deliver a healthy, bouncy baby into the world? You know, I'm going to be, yeah, I'll just be honest, but you're looking you're really responsible for the care of two patients, right? When I walk into somebody's room, I've, I've got two people in mind, the woman and her baby. And so I'm looking at the monitor. I want to look to see how the baby's heart rate is doing. We're checking mom's vitals. We want to make sure she's not getting an infection that can be really serious for her and the baby. Um, we want to make sure, of course, she's coping well, that she's progressing, that she's feeling well-fed and hydrated, that her pain is being managed, whether or not she's having any type of medication. And then when it comes time for her to birth the baby, you just have to always be ready for things to potentially go wrong. 
And I wish that weren't the case, you know, like my ideal of midwifery is just like everything is beautiful and, and I'm not looking for like birth is normal. Your body's not a lemon. Um, everything's going to be fine, but sometimes it's not. And that's just real, but we have such a high, well, this is a whole other topic, but like, we're not used to losing babies. Like maybe our grandparents or great grandparents lost children. Right. You know, we're just not used to it, but that is a part of birth. Death is a part of birth. So I feel like midwifery is a little bit tainted for me, you know, because I do worry. I worry. And you, do, you catch the baby and you put the, usually put the baby right on the mom's chest. And I don't even really get a good look at the baby. And then midwifery work is really focused on stabilizing and making sure that the mother is okay. I might spend 30 or 40 minutes helping her deliver the placenta, doing any repair, managing some bleeding, getting her cleaned up. And then 45 minutes later, I'll go up. I'll actually look at her baby. I'll put a hand on her shoulder. I'll congratulate her. Um, but my work is really for her. So because of the multitude of potential complications, because of the precariousness of the whole situation, it's really hard, if I'm hearing you right, to find joy there's maybe some exhilaration but you just have so many different things you have to be mindful of that it's hard to just be in love with the thing is that the case and i would actually attribute a lot of it to being new mm. you know you when you're brand new in something you're just not relaxed you know yeah there's a little anxiety there yeah um and so i expect with time to feel more comfortable, but I can never be slow to action. So there's a part of me that also has to stay on edge. But I will say I've been at, you know, plenty of births already where you're with someone and you've got this great team of nurses coaching, maybe a first time teen mom who's having a baby and her partner's in the room and sometimes teens can be they're not attached to anything and they'll just they just kind of go they, sometimes they just birth beautifully it's incredible they're just like all right it's time to push let's do it i think i'll probably push this baby out in 30 minutes maybe less we'll see what i can do you know they're just <laughs> and relaxed and just like get it done and and I've been at births where women have been laughing in labor as they're pushing. And I was recently at a birth where a woman pushed her baby out in call, meaning the baby is born in their amniotic sac. What? Looking like, yes. Does that happen? Look up pictures. It's a real thing. And you have to like poke the bag and peel them out of there. And then they start crying. So that was, you know, that was cool and something to celebrate. So there's, there's so much joy in birth, so much joy. Well, I look forward on your behalf to when you become a veteran so that you can find joy in each and every healthy, safe birth. How many births have you been at? Oh, man. Um, Ballpark. Uh, 35 to 40. Wow. Yeah. Is there one that stands out as, uh, like, I, I don't know. I'm kind of a sucker for childbirth stories. You must be too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Is there, is there another story that sort of like stands out as a cut above the rest for one reason or another? Um, so the story I want to tell is about a 42 year old woman having her seventh baby. Hmm. It was just this, beautiful birth you walk into the some patients you walk into the room and it's like whoa you're hit by by this energy and she would just had this this tranquility in labor and she was very calm and she was very appreciative for all you know thanks for all your care and 
I'm going to need to go ahead and get some pain management because I am about to morph into a werewolf <laughs> in about, you know, a few more centimeters. And she just knew that about yeah. herself. And we checked to see how dilated she was. And she wasn't very dilated, but I knew she was going to go fast. I just knew it just by the way she was breathing and laboring. And she had seven kids like, or she had six kids. She, she knows and she knew what was coming up. Sure enough, she goes pretty quickly and we're like rolling her into the, from triage into a labor room and trying to transfer her from the triage bed into the labor bed. And she has this up, this next huge contraction and she grabs onto her partner, who's this big guy. And she's surrounded by all these nurses and she just screams, I can't do this alone. I can't do this alone. Hmm. And we, of course, everybody shouted out, we're here with you. She's like in her husband's embrace. But in that moment, you know, I don't deliver babies. It is this thing that only the birthing person can do. And it is lonely. You know, I feel like even with people around you, you realize it is only you. And our job is to really encourage and support and remind someone that they're strong enough, that they can do it, maybe that they have done it before, reminding them that their body knows the way. Baby came out, she was completely intact, no tearing, no nothing, put the baby on her chest. He was gripping onto one of her fingers and gripping onto the dad's other finger. And that's how we left them, was just this beautiful new addition. And she has said, oh, my kids at home are going to be so excited. They're, they love when new babies come home. Hmm. And I just thought that was beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful. And that she was 42. I think a lot of times we're told that our reproductive years are so limited without a distinction between chronologic years versus biologic years. Yeah, for sure. That's a really rich and beautiful and in many ways inspiring story. And it's a unique story, right? And like every, every pregnancy and every childbirth is unique. Most of them are really stressful and most of them, probably all of them are exciting. How do you manage the tidal wave of fears and feelings, both yours and the fears and feelings of your patients that are just like a natural and beautiful part of pregnancy and childbirth. I mean, I think I have a natural disposition to be calm in times that are stressful or where there's panic. Now that hasn't been tested to the limits. So I'm saying that today and that could change what are we doing with our fear and there's been research in pregnant women about how fear inhibits the release of oxytocin and that is the hormone that helps with uterine contraction that's also the hormone that is released when the baby comes to breast and it helps with bonding and feelings of like euphoria and really allows for women to go the distance in labor. So the best thing we can do is help equip women with tools to combat the fear. And that could be like meditations, that could be affirmations, that could be basic education. I mean, a lot of people are like, I actually don't know what, like I am pregnant and I'm going to be having this baby in four weeks. I don't actually know physiologically, like all that's going to happen. Yeah. And the mystery of what is on the other side or what the, the passage that they're about to go through is very fear inducing, you know? And for other women, it's a lot more challenging. I think there's fear related to the inability to control. These are the bursts that I think are the hardest and sometimes the most frustrating, especially when they end in like a stalled labor. 
often resulting in a cesarean birth. And it's such a hard thing to try to overcome. And especially in the moment of birth, you know, trying to spend as much time as you can with them. Like as a midwife, you have charting, electronic charting that you need to do. You might have other patients on the floor, but if you have downtime, go sit with your patients, make them laugh, get them some juice, like rub their back, like just put a hand on them. Sometimes that's just They just need, the mother needs to be mothered. And that's the work of midwifery. That's splendid. Thank you so much for that. We never let our guests leave without begging them to recommend a guest for me to pursue. This could be either a specific person or more generally a profession that you want to learn more about. Who do you want to hear on the podcast? I feel like there is a connection to birth work in the stamina that it takes to have a baby. And in general, I'm just interested in endurance athlete. And I think it could be interesting to talk to an ultra runner. Ooh, I should find one. These people are, they're, they're otherworldly. Yes, they are. Yeah. The human body is, uh, engaging in hitherto unchartered territories. The last two decades have been pretty insane for human, uh, like, like physical output. Mm-hmm. Ultra marathoners it is. I'm in. Mm-hmm. Well, Kira Jackson, I can't thank you enough for sharing some time with me and giving me some insight into your life as a, as a women's health nurse and as an aspiring midwife. I'm deeply inspired by the spiritual dimensions of what you do day to day and the grit and determination that it takes to, to just be there in that intense process um, and to do it with like the empathy and the kindness and the grace that I know that you do it with. I'm so grateful that you made the time. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. This was great. That Jackson woman's a cut above, huh? That was the first time I ever met her and I was just blown away by her. I imagine you were too. Pretty amazing. Hey, Subscribe, leave a like, write a review. If you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you, and you have the means to give a few, please, please, consider supporting me over at patreon.com backslash studs. Happy New Year, my friends. May 2021 bring you health and happiness, good cheer, Love and kindness. From the depths of my soul, I wish each and every one of you goodness and grace. I'll catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.